So you have to understand that the church I come from, I wear a robe and we have an organ and I have a box that I don't ever have to move out of. And so this is a whole new world for me that there's so much space here. So good morning, Relevant. It's an honor to be here this morning. I want to get a little sappy just for a moment. So for those who can just prepare yourselves here. But um, I just want to say thank you to one of my dearest friends, Muta, um, as you can see, we have a very serious relationship, Muta and I. I wanted to find the picture of him where he's wearing a blue mustache, and I couldn't find it in my pictures. But Muta has just been such a great source of encouragement and inspiration, and it is an honor to be working with him for God's kingdom. So thank you. Sappy moment's over. We're fine now. So, so this morning I want to talk about what is your posture no one started sitting up straighter. So there we go. There's one or two people sitting up. Not exactly what I'm talking about here. So Pastor Muta asked me to come and speak about God's call to generosity. And so I'm going to start out this morning in the book of Genesis. Genesis is the first book in our holy scriptures. And it speaks to God's power and God's grace as God creates the heavens and the earth. And then God forms the first man and woman, and does anyone remember their names? Adam and Eve, right? And they're in the Garden of Eden until they are sent away from eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So we're going to pick it up in Genesis chapter 4, which is page 2 in the Bible. So if everyone... Thank you. That's my son, man. Biggest supporter right there. Thank you, dude. Encourage your mama on. I like that. All right. Genesis chapter four. I'm going to start right at the beginning of the chapter. Now, Adam knew his wife, Eve. We all got that wink, wink there, what that means. And she conceived and bore Cain. I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Sounds like my junior high days. And again, she bore his brother, Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. So we pause here just for a moment. God accepts both offerings, but God prefers Abel's over Cain's. And the text is kind of silent as to why. And so scholars and rabbis for years have come up with all these different reasons. But in the end, God never tells us why. And I think on some level, we can all relate, right? Because we know and have probably experienced the reality that life is unfair, can I get an amen for that one? Sorry, we do that in my church. You talk through the sermon. So, so let's, we're hoping for the promotion. And the person that we deem less worthy gets it instead of us. We practice all year long. And someone who barely shows up beats us at the race. Both sons brought an offering. And God chooses one over the other. But God doesn't abandon Cain. In fact, we see God is going to draw even closer to Cain, and he speaks to Cain afterwards. We're picking up here verse 6. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. 
Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So God is warning Cain, be careful. This is no longer a perfect world and things are going to feel unfair at times. Don't let your desires define you. Don't let it destroy you. Because many times in scripture, we see this idea of sin is described as a live animal, this ready to consume active movement in this battle between what I want and what God wants. And God is warning Cain, I know you're starting to lose sight here. Now, up to this point, Cain has not done anything wrong, but then we're going to see how Cain reacts to the temptation. Starting in verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, how should I know? Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall have to be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. So how does the story of the first murder relate to generosity? I heard it once, and this has really stuck with me, that the sin of Cain was the sin of looking inward. He was looking at his situation, his desire, his anger at the world, that he stopped seeing the humanity in his brother. It was all about his posture. His posture was so focused inward that when God said, where is your brother? Cain replies, how should I know? Cain killed his brother long before he went to the field. When Cain stopped seeing his brother as someone created in the image of God and instead saw him as the other. Did you see that? Am I his babysitter? He doesn't even use his brother's name. Cain had lost sight of God's spirit alive in his brother Abel. So murder was the natural outworking of a posture turned inward. But God will not be stopped, God will not be changed, and God will not be defeated. God's character remains steadfast. Even in Cain's refusal to see the need of his brother, God graciously still responds to the need of Cain. So we're going to finish up verse 13. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. So God continues to care and protect Cain, even when he didn't deserve it. And this is what we call grace. Grace is God reaching out to us even before we realize a need for God. Grace is opening our eyes to seeing our mistakes and failures and then offering us forgiveness so that the mistakes don't define us anymore. And then grace is the power to speak a word of hope to another. So I currently serve in a Methodist church, and the founder of the Methodist denomination was a man called John Wesley, and he said that God gives us grace to grow in perfect love, to love God 
and to love our neighbor. And the two are intertwined. If you want to love God, then you love your neighbor. And when you love your neighbor, you are loving God. So this process of transformation. We call it sanctifying grace in the Methodist church. This process of growing in perfect love towards God and perfect love towards our neighbors. It was first called by the early church fathers the spiritual disciplines. Now, when I think of discipline, this is usually the thought that comes to mind. Discipline as punishment, right? Spiritual disciplines, the discipline of giving money, the discipline of offering forgiveness, fasting from food. It's just God's way of punishing me and making sure I don't get to enjoy the good stuff in life. Actually, the spiritual disciplines are there to help us grow. If we want to change If we want to grow in perfect love and become the person God created us to be, a person who is generous and joyful and forgiving and compassionate, then the disciplines help us in that transformation. Because our natural tendency is what? To have that posture turned. Is anyone listening to the sermon? Okay. Is the posture to turn? There we go. It's for selfishness and that greed and It is here in the community of the church. You see how I straightened up already? It is here we find the encouragement and the accountability to live the life God planned, a life better than we ever imagined, according to Scripture. So discipline and discipleship, they come from the same root word. So to try to be a disciple of Jesus without discipline is wanting the church to be a frat house rather than a place for a new humanity, to offer hope, to bring a good word to a world that needs it. When Cain turned inward, he lost the humanity of his brother. But when we have the posture of generosity, we see God's spirit alive in others. So if sin is waiting and watching and trying to capture us, then the discipline of generosity is our tool for correcting our posture helping us see the spirit of God in our neighbor. Now, in my church and in many other churches, we use the word stewardship to describe this discipline of generosity. Now, I don't know if Pastor Muta warned you, I am a book nerd. And my poor husband knows because every time we move, we have more boxes of books than we do clothes. So for all the fellow book nerds out there, I have a definition from the Spiritual Disciplines Handbook Yeah, there's a handbook, and I found it. So if you have your notes, this will be a great time to start filling them in. What is stewardship? It's the voluntary and generous offering of God's gifts of resources, time, talents, and treasures for the benefit and love of God and others. I like that. It's not just about how I have to give money at church. It's a much greater posture of generosity. So what are the practices that go with this? It is a systematic, intentional, generous lifestyle that flows from love of God and others. It's all rooted in that perfect love. It is a thoughtful, investing resources and spiritual gifts to benefit the body of Christ. Now, when we practice this discipline, when we engage in this lifestyle of generosity, these are kind of the results that come from it being liberated from greed, 
self-centeredness, money, and other things so that the generous spirit of Jesus grows in you. And investing in the kingdom of God, building up treasures in heaven. This is where we love God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and loving your neighbor as yourself. So in essence, the spiritual discipline of stewardship moves giving from just what is left over at the end of the month to giving what is first. So it all is dependent on God's understanding of resources. So this came from my daily devotional. I love this book. It's called A Liturgy for Ordinary Radicals. Do you have that book, Pastor Muta? I'm going to buy you a book. No, I have more books, but that doesn't mean I'm smarter. (laughs) The economics of God's kingdom, all right? We pray in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come. And how does God describe that kingdom? Give us this day our our daily bread, right? It is a simplicity. Nothing more, nothing less than what we need. There's a promise in Scripture that God has created an economy when there there is enough. There is no scarcity with too many people or too little stuff. As Gandhi said, there's enough for everyone's need, but not enough for everyone's greed. So just as Jesus came preaching repentance, he invited his followers to sell everything they have and give to the poor. So the early church went so far as to say, if you had two coats, you have stolen one from the poor. And so when we give to the beggar, we should get on our hands and knees and ask for forgiveness, for we are returning what was wrongfully taken from that person. So this is a trickier question, but my husband knows the answer, so I'll call out on him if I have to. Do you remember the very first words Jesus spoke when he began his ministry? He said, repent for the kingdom. The kingdom has come. Pastor Mutanen, thank you. There we go. Jesus' whole ministry is proclaiming this new reality. This kingdom of God is here. And it is a completely upside-down kingdom. Peace is proclaimed, not war. Everything is sold and given to those in need. Power is redefined, not by the sword, but by a servant love. And not only did it look foolish, it looked dangerous to those in control. Jesus never started a riot. He never formed an army, but by his words was so unsettling that the authorities decided to crucify him to shut him up. And guess what? It didn't work. Can I get an amen there? (laughs) Instead, we have this group of no-named, uneducated nobodies from the middle of nowhere living out this lifestyle of generosity. And it's so powerful that by their words and their peaceful lifestyle, they never fire a single shot. They never own a church building. They never have a fancy marketing campaign, though I love your campaign. Yours is great. (laughs) This group could literally dethrone Caesar and change the world. Now, one of the no-name disciples was the Apostle Paul. He wrote a letter to the church in Corinth and spent a lot of time dealing with all the problems they were having at that church. Not like my church or, or your church, right, Pastor Muda, where there's never a problem anywhere. This is a one-time thing. Now, there's one exception to all the correcting that Paul has to do with the Corinthian church. He writes, I've been bragging about you 
through all the Macedonia province. And what Paul was bragging about was their generous spirit. So in Macedonia, some churches started to run into some real trouble. And Paul says, fierce trouble came down on the people of those churches, pushing them to their very limit. The trial exposed their true colors. They were incredibly happy, though desperately poor. So Paul is writing to this church in Corinth saying, basically, I'm telling everyone how generous you are. And these other churches are really struggling right now. So don't make me sound like a liar. They were ready to give, and they're the ones who really need the money more than anyone else. Now it's your turn. So after saying this, about bragging about other churches, the spirit of the Corinthian church, Paul writes these words. So we're going to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, page 628. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. The cheerful giver, starting in verse 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And every pastor will tell you the joke, but he'll take a crabby one too. I use it all the time. Verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply And multiply your seeds for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. So when I think of this, I cannot help but think of relevant. So this church is so similar to the church in Corinth or any other church that was planted by the Apostle Paul. The grace of Jesus Christ, it's declared. A community is formed because someone else decided to give. The church began because a handful of believers decided to trust God and pour out their finances on this place in Corinth and now in Niles. It didn't make sense, and by most standards, was probably very foolish. But look what God can do with foolish people. Amen? (laughs) Yeah, we'll clap on that one. (laughs) This church happens every Sunday because people continue to be lavish in their giving, to invest in God's work through their finances and their time with playing wonderful music and greeting at the door and praise God there were donuts when I walked in. It was wonderful. 
And I think church planting is probably one of the hardest callings in the world. Because the Apostle Paul had to trust every day that someone else is going to have an open posture. Someone would see his humanity and help provide for his needs while he spreads the good word of God's grace. And Paul did his part. He held down a job working long nights between teaching at the temple and worshiping with other believers. And I know Pastor Muta and his whole family are doing the same calling. And I know there have been times when I've called Muta as he's running from one job to the next job while getting ready for the third job and still pouring. And I'll, I'll tell you, as an outsider, you have a pastor who pours his heart and prayers into this community. And I stand here amazed to see how God has taken the generosity of others and used it to create this unexplainable blessing here in Niles. Only God can do this miracle. Amen for that? Mm. See, the painful truth about generosity is that our attitude towards giving is going to reveal what's in our heart and our posture. The discipline is going to force us to ask the hard questions. What do we really need to be content? Are we willing to share? Will we live on less so that others can have more? Can we downsize rather than trade up? It makes us attend to God's question. Are you doing all I would have you do with what I have given you? Now, it is very easy for the stewardship sermon to turn into the guilt fest, and we really need to be honest about our responsibilities. So I received this newsletter that outlined discipline in response to grace, and I love this understanding. So our generous spirit means our family. There is no glory to God if we neglect our family, and it means our community. There is no glory to God if we neglect our neighbors, and it means our church. There is no glory to God if we neglect the body of Christ. So how have I seen God through this discipline? I married this good-looking man right here. And he has a very strong passion for giving. (laughs) To the point that when we got married, he only owned one pair of jeans because he had given the rest away. And when we began our life together, we participated in something called Financial Peace University. And it kind of helped teach us how to manage the gifts God had given us. So we would put 10% of our income into savings, 10% would go to the church, and the other 80% would be for whatever else we would want. Which was kind of tough in the beginning because I really wanted new couches that matched, right? And Eric really needed a new car, and I'm a pastor now, so I have to have a wardrobe to match for the new job, right? But the discipline of giving helped shift my outlook from what I could buy in terms of happiness to what I could give. It is a lot easier to learn that shift when your income is higher. Because before we had kids, Eric and I were both working, and we'd go on a nice vacation. We went out to to dinner like once a week. Do you remember that? You know what I found out? Kids are freaking expensive. May I get an amen on that one? (laughs) So when money becomes a lot more tight, we didn't have a crisis of faith because I had already been disciplining my attitude. Because I don't know about you, but for me, it comes down to 
the attitude. When I trust that God is my provider, my needs are redefined. So recently, we had to make a decision about this discipline. So our family was called to serve this Methodist church in Nowheresville, Missouri. And it was so clear that God's hand was on this move, regardless of what Pastor Muta said. And we trust... He didn't want me to go. And we trusted God, and we packed up our house, and we have seen God's blessing this whole past year, except for one tiny detail, a three-bedroom, two-bath detail that still had not sold in Michigan. And our house was still on the market. And even last week, because God knew I'd be preaching on generous giving, I'm looking at a mortgage payment that I can't make. And the fear and worry of trying to find some extra money on our very tight budget. And the only place I could find the money was in our giving to our church in Missouri and our giving to Relevant. And all of a sudden, I see myself start to turn back inward from fear. And all these excuses that start coming up with, and do you see literally my posture? Like, I'm walking around like this, around our house. And Eric, thank God for Eric, comes along, literally straightens me out. And we prayed a lot. And I cried a lot. (laughs) But we held so firm to our faith. Because God has always provided. Why would he stop now? So I am here to rejoice that the house has sold and we are up here this weekend closing. Oh, we can, we can clap on this one, people. Trust me. We can clap here, okay? I did not make a ton of money. We barely scraped out with our original down payment. But you know what? It's just money. And I prayed for God to provide and God did. Was it the way I wanted? Not really. Did I have a cane moment? I had this desire to complain because life's just not fair. Absolutely. But I saw God's faithfulness through the storm. And I fell in love all over again with this old hymn. Remember, Methodist, organ, these are our hymns. And so these words became so powerful for me in the last couple of weeks. Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide strength for today bright hope for tomorrow blessings all mine with 10,000 beside so if you know it we're going to sing the chorus along so Bonnie you can sing extra loud for me you ready Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness, morning by morning, new mercies I see, all I have needed thy hand hath provided, great is thy faithfulness, Lord. Okay, man, the Lord provided me a backup piano player. Like, God is awesome. Well done, sir. Well done. (laughs) See, I told you I wanted a theme song coming up here, but this was even better. (laughs) Here's the bottom line. Do you want to see God? Then you got to commit to God's work. If you want to notice what God is doing, then you have to accept the invitation to participate. Because God is doing something at relevant. Amen? Amen. 
Okay, y'all did not hear me. Let's try this again. God is doing something at Relevant. Amen? Amen. There we go. Pastor Musa, how many people did you say was at Easter worship this year? I'm, I'm sorry, what was that? Okay, and so here's the humility. 235. That beats my numbers. Blew them out. And that, there was my cane moment again. Lord, are you telling me he had more worship than... Praise God for God's faithfulness. Over 200 Easter worship. And where are you going next Sunday? Upgrading to the high school. There is a good spirit blowing in this church. And I really think the Holy Spirit is preparing you for something great. And I want to invite you to join in on what God is doing here. So I'm going to leave you with this thought as you think about your posture. C.S. Lewis is one of my favorite writers, but sometimes he makes me feel uncomfortable, and this is one of them. He writes this quote, I do not believe one can settle on how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditures on comforts and luxuries and amusements is up to the standard common with those of the same income as ours, then we're probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. And so, Pastor Muta, Eric and I were really hoping to be able to... I'm going to invite you up here for a second. We're really hoping to be able to do this. Unfortunately, the paperwork didn't happen in time. So I'm going to give you a handshake instead and a promise because God was faithful to us and we sold the house. And so Eric and I are going to give you the tithe off of our house. No, no, no. Remember, small amount God's given us here, all right? I am not paying for the new building, all right? But we see what God is doing here. And we want to be part of that. And so we're not just going to, I don't just preach it. I really believe you're doing a great thing here. So a promise and next week when the paperwork finishes, there'll be a piece of paper that goes with that, but it, it, it didn't work. So, so with that, will you close us in prayer? Do you need my microphone? You got one? You, you need me to turn off my microphone at this point. That's a, that's Actually, enough, I'm, I'm going to ask now. Eric to come up here as well, yeah, that's too. Enough, Katie. Um, this is incredible because this couple right here has been with this journey from the very, very beginning. And the whole reason and... Like, I was compelled to ask her to come and teach this message because she lives this. It is, this is their life. Her and her husband, Eric, are incredibly, incredibly gen- generous. From the time we told them, we believe that God has called us to plant a church. I remember Eric said, we feel compelled that we are supposed to partner with you financially. So, Eric and Katie, I just want to say thank you. The reason all of this exists, the reason that we have a place to worship in is because of your faithful giving. Absolutely. Because of God working through you. So I just really want to tell you from the deepest part of my heart, I am grateful and deeply indebted to you guys for how you've allowed God to work through your life to minister to us. You're supposed to give me a hug, Eric. That's what she said. pray for them in their ministry as well too. Gracious God, we thank you for uh, Eric and Katie, Lord, and just their generosity, Lord. 
generosity in all facets of their life, God. And I just thank you that even through this tough season of caring to mortgages and all the responsibilities that they had, Lord, they've remained faithful, Lord, not only to their local church, but they've remained faithful to giving to this church plant in Niles, Michigan. So God, I pray that you may pour out a double portion of your Holy Spirit upon them. Give them back a hundredfold and more what they've poured out, Lord, to the work that they're doing, to their family, God. We just ask, God, that you will continue to carry them so far into your work, Lord, that they will see so, so many people, thousands upon thousands of people come to faith because of the work that you're doing through them. So I thank you, God, for this amazing message, this convicting message that she's just uh, taught this morning. And we, we're so honored, Lord, that you would, you would invite us to join you in this way. Thank you for uh, Pastor Katie and Eric, Lord, and may you keep them as they continue to your work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.